You're listening to Imaginary Histories. This is the second in a two-part series. If you missed part one, feel free to go back and listen before you listen to this one. But if you don't feel like doing that, you can just pick up where we are right in the middle, and it should be fine. In early May 1692, the Salem magistrates, John Hathorne and Jonathan Corbin, were very busy men. The arrest of George Burroughs in Maine and his subsequent examination in Salem exposed a vast network of evil, attacking the Puritan colonists from outside, the Wabanaki, and inside, the colonists who had joined the forces of Satan. New accusations, prosecutions, and confessions were happening at a rapid pace. And they were including prominent respected members of colonial society, like George Burroughs, John Alden Jr., Rebecca Nurse, and others. At this point, the examinations had become almost beside the point. It had already been common practice before the witch trials for colonial authorities to assume the guilt of anyone formally accused of a crime. Now, claiming to be innocent of the charges against them made the accused look even more suspicious in the eyes of the citizens. But those who openly confessed to being witches were given protection by Hathorne, so that they would be able to inform on other still-hidden members of the conspiracy. On May 13th, the magistrates began using a new technique for uncovering these infiltrators, the touch test. Abigail Soames, a 37-year-old single woman who was mostly bedridden, recuperating from smallpox, had been accused of being a witch by Mary Warren. The examiners brought Mary to Abigail's room in Salem Town, where Mary fell into especially painful fits as if she was being bitten by something invisible. Abigail was told to take Mary's hand. When they touched, Mary instantly recovered. The examiners tried this experiment three times and got the same result, but Mary was unable to reach out and touch Abigail. When she tried, she fell into fits again. The authorities became convinced that the touch of a witch would heal his or her victim, and they began applying this test in the course of their examinations. As the authorities were uncovering more and more evil in their midst, everything changed. On the evening of May 14th, two men that had sailed from London arrived in Boston Harbor. One of the men, Sir William Phipps, was a native of Maine, a hero of the Indian Wars and the newly appointed governor of Massachusetts. The second man was named Increase Mather. He was one of the most powerful leaders of the colonial order, and after the original charter had been revoked in 1688, he traveled to London to negotiate a new charter, hoping to preserve as much of the old Puritan privileges as possible. William Phipps and Increase Mather brought with them from London a new charter establishing the province of Massachusetts Bay. News of the witchcraft trials hadn't reached London. As the celebration of the new regime commenced in Boston, William Phipps was stunned to learn that the jails in Salem and Boston were packed with 38 people awaiting trial for witchcraft. In order to convene the jury sessions and trials necessary to hear all the cases, Phipps issued a commission on May 27th for a court of Aurier and Termine, from the French legal terms to hear and determine, appointing nine judges, including Magistrate John Hathorne and the Lieutenant Governor William Stoughton. They were a combination of men learned in law and theology and wealthy merchants, 
Many of these men had served together in government or as militia officers. Some of them were in-laws to each other. The court was called into session at the Salem Town Courthouse on June 2nd. They immediately had to decide which evidence was admissible and which should be ruled out, since witchcraft, almost by definition, generated few traces of physical evidence. Mostly they followed the standard legal guidance of the time, which said to look for the use of charms, talismans, potions, or books on witchcraft. Accused witches could also be searched for devil's marks on the body, blue or red spots, for example, or other physical anomalies. Other tests could be administered in court, like the touch test, or asking the accused to recite the Lord's Prayer correctly. The most weight was given to outright confessions of witchcraft, but the question remained of what to do with so-called spectral evidence, like those moments when the accused's movements caused pain in the afflicted girls, or when a witch's specter was struck by a weapon and the witch's physical body showed a wound in the same spot. The court decided to admit spectral evidence, despite some misgivings. Most of the numerous accounts of apparitions, visions, and specters were entered directly into evidence and not presented to the jury. On the first session of June 2nd, the court began with the case of Bridget Bishop. The official records of the court have been lost, but we can piece together what happened from other accounts, and it seems that her trial followed a pattern that the other trials followed as well. First, the grand jury heard testimony from the afflicted, who frequently fell into fits. Then those who had confessed were brought in to add or to corroborate the previous testimony. Any witnesses to previous acts of witchcraft by the accused told their own stories. The accused's body would be searched for witches' marks and the results presented to the court. The accused would then speak in their own defense. Under English law of the time, no criminal defendant was allowed to have an attorney, nor were they allowed to swear to their own innocence, since if they were lying, their souls would be damned. Finally, the jury would deliberate and deliver its verdict. In the case of Bridget Bishop, she was convicted and sentenced to death. She was hung at Gallows Hill in Salem on June 10th. Cotton Mather was born in Boston in 1663. His father, Increase Mather, was one of the most important men in Massachusetts Bay, serving as a religious leader, a government official, and the president of Harvard University, a position he held during the Salem trials. Cotton Mather himself graduated Harvard in 1678 at the age of 15, and eventually became assistant pastor at his father's church, the North Square Church in Boston. He took over as pastor of the church in 1685. During this time, Mather was fascinated by the work of Robert Boyle, the Anglo-Irish scientist and philosopher. He also became involved in the strange case of the four Goodwin children. In the summer of 1688, Anne Glover and her daughter were living in Boston, working as housekeepers for John Goodwin and his family. One day, the oldest child, 13-year-old Martha Goodwin, accused the daughter of Anne Glover of stealing some of the family's linens. Anne denied it, and the argument between her and the Goodwins was ferocious. The Goodwin children then came down with a strange illness. Their doctor was baffled, and then exasperation declared that the children might be bewitched. Anne Glover was a true outsider in colonial Massachusetts, an Irish Catholic who could understand English but couldn't speak it. Cotton Mather was her foremost accuser, 
and at first he and the others thought that she might have been speaking the devil's own tongue until they realized she was speaking her native Irish Gaelic. She couldn't recite the Lord's Prayer in English, and a search of her home turned up small figurines, probably saints or icons. Most of the accusations against Anne were based on spectral evidence. When Mather interrogated her, he said that she claimed to pray to a host of spirits, which Mather took to be demons, but were probably saints. Once a group of doctors determined her to be of sound mind, she was pronounced guilty of witchcraft and hanged in front of a jeering crowd in Boston on November 16, 1688. The following year, Mather published a book titled Memorable Providences Relating to Witchcraft and Possession, a faithful account of many wonderful and surprising things that have befallen several bewitched and possessed persons in New England. His book described the ordeal of the Goodwin children and the trial and execution of Anne Glover. He argued that not only were witches real, they could manifest themselves in spectral form, that there was no natural explanation for the afflictions of those who were bewitched. His description of the fits of the Goodwin children was a close match with the fits experienced by the girls in Salem Village three years later. When the Salem witch investigations moved into the court of Oyeu Termine, Mather was there at the start, advising the judges and influencing the entire proceedings in various ways. He pushed for the inclusion of the Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor, William Stoughton, to preside over the trials, seeing Stoughton as a potentially powerful ally for Mather's own future ambitions. During the trials themselves, Mather wrote about them, publicized them, and praised them. He never doubted the validity of spectral evidence. He never once doubted that Puritan New England was under severe attack by a conspiracy of evil witches allied with hostile natives. And he never doubted that all those executed for witchcraft in Salem were guilty. In late 1693, when the trials were over, he put forth his views in a book titled Wonders of the Invisible World, Observations as well historical as theological, upon the nature, the number, and the operations of the devils. By that time, it must have read like a defense of the recent trials and the actions of the authorities, rather than a call to action. One section reads, quote, The New Englanders are a people of God settled in those which were once the devil's territories. And it may easily be supposed that the devil was exceedingly disturbed when he perceived such a people here accomplishing the promise of old made unto our blessed Jesus, that he should have the utmost parts of the earth for his possession. Wherefore, the devil is now making one attempt more upon us, an attempt more difficult, more surprising, more snarled with unintelligible circumstances than any that we have hitherto encountered, an attempt so critical that if we get well through we shall soon enjoy halcyon days, with all the vultures of hell trodden under our feet. He has wanted his incarnate legions to persecute us, as the people of God have in the other hemisphere been persecuted. He has therefore drawn forth his more spiritual ones to make an attack upon us. Unquote. After the witch trials, Mather went on to write over 450 published works, which loomed large in the theological debates and natural sciences of the New England colonies for decades. He became known as a leading proponent of inoculation to prevent the spread of smallpox, this involved making a small cut in someone's skin and deliberately giving them a mild infection that could be easily treated, which gave that person future immunity to the disease. In November 1713, a measles epidemic claimed the lives of his wife, newborn twins, and two-year-old daughter. Only two of his 15 children survived him, and neither of his wives did. 
Mather himself passed away on February 13, 1728, the day after his 65th birthday, having never indicated a moment of regret over his role in the Salem Witch Trials. In the early summer of 1899, Washington City Emergency Hospital in Washington, D.C., was admitting patient after patient complaining of insect bites. A crime reporter for the Washington Post named James McAlone was on the hunt for a story. And when he heard about the high number of bug bite victims at Washington City Hospital, he pounced. He talked to the victims and was puzzled to find that none of them remembered actually being bitten by any kind of bug. And yet they were in the hospital with the symptoms of being bitten by some type of poisonous insect. One of the victims, a newspaper agent named William Smith, had, quote, an upper lip swollen to many times its natural size. The symptoms are in every case the same, and there is indication of poisoning from an insect's bite, unquote. The fact that none of the victims saw the insect in question led Macalone to conclude that they had been bitten as they slept. And since their lips appeared to swell, it must have been what Macalone dubbed the kissing bug. Quote, Look out for the new bug. It is an insidious insect that bites without causing pain and escapes unnoticed. But afterward, the place where it has bitten swells to ten times its normal size. The emergency hospital has had several victims of this insect, its patients lately, and the number is increasing. Unquote. Once the story was published in the Washington Post, other local newspapers ran with their own stories within days, warning of the dangers of the kissing bug epidemic that was apparently spreading outward from the nation's capital. Since no one could give a decent description of what the kissing bug actually looked like, anyone who got or thought they got a sting from any insect thought it might have actually been the dreaded kissing bug. A few days after McAlone's story ran in the Post, a new story titled Kissing Bug at Work described the pain experienced by three bite victims. One of them was an actress. She had been bitten on the forehead, and her doctor would be operating on her if the swelling failed to go down. Reports about kissing bug attacks began to appear across the United States. In one town where kissing bug attacks had occurred, it was reported that every residence in the town is closed airtight. In mid-July, a 33-year-old Chicago native named Mary Steger died of unknown causes. After determining that Mary had been bitten by a mysterious bug six days previously, her doctor, George Illingsworth, signed a death certificate that read, quote, Chief and determining cause of death, sting of kissing bug. Consecutive and contributory cause, tonsillitis, unquote. The other doctors and local medical experts questioned this diagnosis, but when the coroner tried to conduct an autopsy on Mary's body, he discovered that she had already been embalmed and as a result, there was no way to establish the true cause of her death. The story ran in the paper under the headline, Cause of Death, a Kissing Bug. Soon, new deaths were attributed to the bite of the kissing bug, even when there was no evidence that the deceased had any bug bites at all. Mary Steger's death also inspired a preacher from Chicago named A.M. Leonard, who claimed that the kissing bug was a sign mentioned in the Book of Revelation, Chapter 9, heralding the Apocalypse. All the victims, he reasoned, were lacking in faith and thus marked for death by the will of God. But the actual kissing bug, despite being everywhere and possibly ending the world, remained elusive. 
Almost all the countless specimens of alleged kissing bugs sent in to various scientific organizations for identification were common insects. Houseflies, beetles, bees, wasps. One person sent in a butterfly. One reporter had ventured to identify the elusive kissing bug as the Black Corsair, with the scientific name Melanolestes pisipes. But these insects lived deep in woodland areas, not the streets of Washington, D.C. and Chicago, and they never attacked humans unless provoked. The chief entomologist at the Department of Agriculture, a man named Leland Ossian Howard, tried to debunk the kissing bug panic in a widely read article for Popular Science Monthly. He said that it was a, quote, newspaper epidemic. For every insect bite, where the biter was not at once recognized, was attributed to the popular and somewhat mysterious creature. At the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science held in Columbus, Ohio, Professor John Smith said, quote, If anyone would bring me a live kissing bug, I will let it sting to its heart content. We are simply going through a craze like the one we had when spider bites were popular. Everybody who was bitten by any kind of an insect was bitten by a spider. The same is true now. Unquote. When the summer of 1899 came to an end, so did the kissing bug panic. Leland Ossie and Howard went on to become one of the world's leading entomologists, publishing over a thousand papers and books, describing 47 new types of parasitic wasps and ants, and more than 20 species of mosquitoes. And conducting research that identified one of the most dangerous insects to humans because of the many diseases it spread, not the mysterious kissing bug, the common housefly. After the execution of Elizabeth Bishop on June 10, 1692, there were two weeks of relative quiet, with no new suspects jailed and only three spectral attacks. During this lull, some reservations and even the first doubts began to creep into the minds of some colonists. There had always been a few who spoke out loudly against the trials, which of course made them all the more suspect. At this point, most of those dissenters were on trial themselves, most of the local clergymen cautiously expressed their confusion and dismay about the prosecution's tactics in the court trials, couched in effusive praise of the magistrates. A Boston minister, Reverend William Milborn, started two petitions, which he intended to present to the new Massachusetts Assembly when it convened, condemning the charges against some of the prominent citizens that had been accused, like Rebecca Nurse, George Burroughs, and several others. But when William Phipps and his counsel got wind of it, Milborn was ordered to either pay a large fine or be thrown in jail. He chose the latter. Also during this time, the family of Rebecca Nurse had been fighting back against her indictment for witchcraft, publicly attacking the credibility and character of her accusers, Abigail Williams, Betty Hubbard, Mercy Lewis, and others. The court reconvened on June 28th. Despite her family's efforts, Rebecca Nurse was tried and found guilty along with Sarah Good and three other women. One accused man, Roger Toothaker, had already died in prison on June 16th, making him the trial's second victim. And on July 19th, the five convicted women were executed by hanging at Gallows Hill. But the executions only seemed to feed the expanding cycle of accusations and confessions, which by now had spread to Andover, then Gloucester, than all of Essex County. As August began, Governor William Phipps, who had already distanced himself somewhat from the court proceedings, traveled north to Maine to oversee the improvement of the province's defenses. 
Meanwhile, the convictions continued. On August 19th, George Burroughs, John Proctor, Martha Carrier, and two other men were executed by hanging on Gallows Hill. Burroughs had been considered the leader of the witch conspiracy for several weeks. Local people had packed the courtroom during his trial, and so they flocked to his execution. One observer noted that the condemned, quote, forgave their accusers and seemed to be very sincere, upright, and sensible of their circumstances on all accounts. Another man present described how Burroughs, before the gallows, made an eloquent speech declaring his innocence and finished by perfectly reciting the Lord's Prayer, which brought many of the onlookers to tears. The authorities became concerned that the crowd was so moved that they might try to stop the execution. Burroughs was hung before they could do so, and as soon as they did, Cotton Mather leapt onto his horse and exhorted the people to remember that, quote, the devil has often been transformed into an angel of light. This had the effect of calming the crowd, and the executions continued. The court convened for another session on September 5th, and over two weeks, the juries tried several more men and women, including Martha Corey. All of them were found guilty. Abigail Hobbs, who had confessed to being a witch several weeks ago, pled guilty. She was one of the few confessors who was prosecuted. The court seemed to be in a rush. It wasn't even following its own lenient standards for evidence and testimony. Eight more people, Martha Corey among them, were hung at Gallows Hill on September 22nd. In the meantime, the court had to deal with the problem of Martha Corey's husband, 81-year-old Giles Corey. He stubbornly refused to enter a plea of guilty or not guilty to the court, despite being legally ordered to do so. As a result, on September 17th, the sheriff led Giles Corey to a pit in the open field beside his jail. Following the law of the time, the sheriff stripped Giles naked before the court and other witnesses. He laid Giles on the ground inside the pit, then placed wooden boards over his stomach and chest. Six men then put heavy stones, one by one, on the boards. Despite the pain, Giles remained silent. Over the next two days, he was given a few mouthfuls of bread and water. He was asked three times to plead innocent or guilty to witchcraft. At each time, he replied, More weight. As the rocks piled up, the sheriff would occasionally stand on them to add to the pressure. But Giles wouldn't give in. On September 19th, Three days before his wife's execution, Giles supposedly cried out, More weight! One last time, before finally dying. Though other observers said that with his last breath, he cursed both the sheriff and the town of Salem. The Salem Witch Trials of 1692 and 1693 stand out among the long history of witch trials in Europe. For one thing, most of the accusations in Salem Village came from girls between the ages of 9 and 19 years old. There were older accusers like Mary Warren, who was 20, Anne Putnam Sr., who was 30, and the oldest, Sarah Vibber, who was 36. But mostly the accusers in Salem, and later Andover, were in their teens or younger. These young women had perhaps the least amount of social status in Puritan New England, apart from total outsiders like the Native Americans, the French, and the Dutch. But the adults in the colonies not only listened to these girls and took them seriously, they tried, convicted, and executed prominent members of their own community 
based mostly on their testimony. The witch trials in many ways upended the social hierarchy in Salem. But that society, as we've seen, was already unstable, under severe attack from Indians and their allies, and in a state of uncertainty at the highest levels of government. But the sheer terror, the pervasive, irrational fear at the heart of the Salem trials has remained something like a black box for historians who have tried to explain or even just comprehend what exactly happened in 1692 New England. There are so many theories about the cause of the witch panic that can be grouped into types. Physiological explanations, economic explanations, and psychological explanations. One well-known physiological theory holds that the accusers ate some rye infested with the ergot fungus, which caused hallucinations, pain, and convulsions consistent with the accuser's fits. But there's no real evidence to support this theory, or similar theories blaming encephalitis or an outbreak of Lyme disease. Economic explanations are probably the most commonly accepted theories at the moment. One theory traces the source of the witch panic back to the global cooling that occurred between 1550 and 1800, known as the Little Ice Age. The coldest period fell between 1680 and 1730. The winters were severe, leading to food shortages and other hardships, and in turn the scapegoating of witches. Another theory points out the class difference between the relatively wealthy merchants of Salem Town to the east with the relatively poor farmers of Salem Village to the west, and claims that the witchcraft trials were a way for the poorer villagers to strike back at the unfairly privileged towners. The economic explanations for Salem have the advantage of providing rational causes for the behavior of the villagers. But that reasonableness is itself a problem. It's hard to believe that the Salem folk were motivated by rational economic self-interest to almost tear their own society apart. If we argue that the villagers were unconsciously motivated by economic factors, that takes us into the realm of the psychological. The psychological explanations include the theory that the villagers were suffering from a form of what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of years of brutal warfare against the Wabanakis. Another psychological theory proposes that the girls were pushed into a kind of neurosis by straining against their strict Puritan upbringing and their low social status. Their fits stemmed from this mental struggle, and then the fits themselves became a tactic in continuing that struggle. A related theory posits that the girls felt controlled and constrained, specifically by the older Puritan women. Thus, the girls were able to project their own anger and resentment onto the married or widowed women, making those women responsible for the girls' own rage, which could not be openly expressed in any way. The problem with these theories is that it's difficult to either verify or disprove what anyone's mental state is at any time, let alone hundreds of years ago. For this podcast, I've relied heavily on the work of Mary Beth Norton and her excellent book, In the Devil's Snare, mostly because she uses original sources wherever possible and creates a clear timeline of the witchcraft crisis. Many of the records about the witchcraft trials have been either lost or were deliberately destroyed by those who participated in them. But enough records have survived that we can at least understand what happened, if not why. The simplest explanation, of course, is that it all really happened. That Cotton Mather was right. The devil recruited a conspiracy of male and female witches and had them join forces with the Indians to drive God's chosen out of their promised land. 
Of all the theories that try to explain the Salem Witch Trials, this one remains the least popular of all. In June 1784, the Connecticut Courant and Weekly Intelligencer printed a letter to the editor from Councilman Moses Holmes from Willington, Connecticut, who warned people to beware of, quote, a certain quack doctor, a foreigner, unquote, who had urged families to dig up and burn dead relatives to stop the spread of consumption, which we now call tuberculosis. Holmes had witnessed several children's corpses exhumed at this doctor's request, and he wanted it to stop. But this practice of exhuming the bodies of those who had died of consumption, and usually burning part or all of them, was a New England tradition, ensuring that the dead would not rise from their graves to infect others. If multiple members of the same family died of TB, it was often blamed on the dead coming back to infect their living relatives. There were at least 80 exhumations dating as far back as the 1700s, and as far west as Minnesota, but most were in rural New England in the 1800s. In Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Vermont, the corpse would be exhumed, its heart cut out, and the heart burned. In some areas, it was thought that inhaling the smoke of the burning heart could cure those who were already sick with consumption. In 1793, hundreds of people attended a heart-burning ceremony at a blacksmith's forge in Manchester, Vermont. In Woodstock, Vermont, a heart was burned on the town green in 1830. Several corpses were exhumed at the same time in Jewett City, Connecticut, in 1854. In Plymouth, Massachusetts, those who died of tuberculosis would be dug up, removed from their coffin if they had one, flipped face down, and reburied. That way, if they tried to claw their way out of their graves, they would end up going in the wrong direction. In the 1880s, George and Mary Eliza Brown lived in Exeter, Rhode Island, on a homestead of between 30 to 40 acres. Tragedy struck in December 1882, when Mary Eliza died of tuberculosis. The next year, their oldest daughter, a dressmaker named Mary Olive, died of tuberculosis at the age of 20. The whole town of Exeter came to her funeral and sang hymns for her. Then in 1891, George's daughter, Mercy Lena Brown, and his son, Edwin, both came down with tuberculosis. Edwin was a large, healthy man, and it seemed he might be able to beat the illness, so he traveled to Colorado Springs to recover, but he returned in worse shape than when he left. The locals in Exeter began to wonder if perhaps Mary Eliza or Mary Olive Brown had returned from the dead to cause Edwin's illness. When Mercy Lena died in January 1892, it was decided that something had to be done. After months of pressure, George had his permission to have his dead family members exhumed, and examined. On March 17, 1892, the villagers, a local doctor and a newspaper board reporter for the Providence Journal, exhumed the bodies of the Browns. George decided not to be present, however. The examiners found that Mary Eliza and Mary Olive had significantly decomposed, but Mercy Lena Brown strangely looked rather healthy. She had blood in her heart and liver, which was taken as a sign that she was perhaps undead. The doctor made some other incisions and pointed out the clear TB infection in Mercy's lungs. Of course, her body had been in an above-ground tomb in cold weather, which kept her preserved, and she had only been dead two months, and the blood of dead bodies tends to pool in the chest cavity. In any event, Mercy's heart and liver were cut out and burned on a nearby rock. 
The ashes and other remnants were mixed with water and given to the now sickly Edwin to drink. It was going to cure him. But he died anyway, two months later. Mercy's remains were reburied in the cemetery of the Exeter Baptist Church. The Providence Journal's reporting was read by George Stetson, a famous anthropologist of the time who traveled to Rhode Island to investigate this, quote, barbaric superstition. His account was published in a prestigious journal, which meant the story spread around the world. The New York World published their own story on Mercy Lena Brown in 1896. This story was read by a stage manager from London, who was touring the U.S. that year, named Bram Stoker. He was working on a new novel he called The Undead, which he changed right before publication in 1897 to Dracula. One of the characters in the book is named Lucy. She seems to suffer from something like consumption, though Van Helsing, the doctor, realizes that something more evil is afoot. Later, Lucy dies, and in a pivotal scene, her corpse is exhumed, presided over by the doctor. Finally, she is turned into a vampire, and the main characters have to destroy her, in part by driving a stake through her heart. Massachusetts Bay Governor William Phipps returned to Boston from his expedition to Pemaquid in Maine on September 29, 1692. In his absence, eight executions had taken place. Defendants had been convicted on almost no evidence, and public opinion had turned against the witch trials. When Increase Mather denounced the use of spectral evidence on October 3rd, it was the beginning of the end. Without spectral evidence, the remaining cases had no ground to stand on. The true end came when rumors spread about William Phipps' own wife possibly being implicated in the witch conspiracy. This enraged Governor Phipps. He shut down the court proceedings, prohibited further arrests, released many of the accused from prison, and on October 29th dissolved the court of Oyer and Termine. A new court was established that would convene in January 1693 to decide what to do with those still in custody. Throughout January and February, defendant after defendant was found not guilty or cleared by proclamation of the governor. The last victim of the trials was a woman named Lydia Dustin, who died in custody on March 10th. She had been found not guilty, but wasn't released because she was too poor to pay her jailer's fees. The last trials were held on May 10th, when five defendants were found not guilty, seven were cleared by proclamation, and a grand jury decided not to indict Tituba the slave, whose witchcraft had been blamed for the fits of Abigail Williams and Betty Paris a year and a half earlier. Once it was clear the witchcraft trials no longer had the weight of the colonial government behind them, a fierce public backlash began. Families of the convicted spent decades trying to clear their names and get compensation. Publications appeared condemning the trials, though their authors were often harassed or even imprisoned for criticizing those in power. William Phipps, under attack from all sides for his actions, was recalled to England and left Massachusetts in mid-November 1694. Shortly after his arrival back in London, he died. But many of those worthies who had backed the trials expressed their own regrets. On December 17, 1696, the general court ruled that there would be a fast day, and January 14, 1697, Quote, referring to the late tragedy raised among us by Satan and his instruments. That same day, Samuel Sewell asked Reverend Samuel Willard to read aloud his apology to the congregation of Boston's South Church, quote, to take the blame and shame of the late commission of Oye and Termine at Salem, 
He was the only judge who publicly renounced the trials. Thomas Fisk and 11 other trial jurors also asked forgiveness. John Hale, a minister in Beverly who was present at many of the examinations and trials, completed a book about the witch panic in 1697, where he wrote, quote, Such was the darkness of that day, the tortures and lamentations of the afflicted, and the power of former precedents, that we walked in the clouds and could not see our way. The book wasn't published until 1702, after Hale's death. On October 25, 1706, Anne Putnam, Jr. joined the Salem Village Church. She asked for forgiveness from the congregation, saying that she meant no harm, but the devil had tricked her into denouncing the innocent like Rebecca Nurse. Anne was accepted for full membership in the church. If any other accusers had doubts or regrets, we have no records of them. Various individuals had their convictions overturned through the years, but it wasn't until October 31, 2001, when all the accused were finally proclaimed innocent. In January 2016, the University of Virginia announced that a team of researchers from the school had finally determined the exact location of Gallows Hill in Salem, the site of 19 executions. A small, barren, rocky ledge overlooking the town, positioned so that those witches hung from the surrounding trees couldn't be missed by the villagers below. The site currently overlooks a Walgreens pharmacy. The city of Salem owns the property and plans to install a memorial there to the victims of the witchcraft trials. In February 1741, in New York City, three slaves robbed a small store owned by a white couple. One of the slaves, a man named Caesar, brought his loot to a tavern of ill repute down by the docks. The tavern was owned by a man named John Hewson, who was known for fencing stolen goods from slaves in exchange for alcohol. Caesar was caught and arrested, along with one of his partners, a slave named Prince. Then a fire on March 18th broke out at Fort George, at that time the home of Lieutenant Governor George Clark. This was followed by a rash of unexplained fires across all of Lower Manhattan. The fires increased in number, reaching a climax on April 6th, when four fires broke out in a single day. After a local slave man named Cuffy was seen running from one of the fires, he was arrested under the suspicion of having said it, though there was as yet no proof. A judge named Daniel Horsmanden was appointed to lead the investigation into the fires. He was also presiding over the burglary trial of Caesar, Prince, and John Hewson. Judge Horsmanden was convinced that the burglary was connected to the fires. He and others wondered if New York City might be facing a conspiracy, possibly a slave revolt, using the weapon of arson. The colonies had seen a major slave uprising in North Carolina two years previous, so it wasn't hard to believe that another revolt was possible. Manhattan had the second largest slave population of any city in the colonies after Charleston, South Carolina. The idea of a slave revolt on the island was terrifying to the white New Yorkers. At the same time, Protestant Britain had been at war with Catholic Spain for two years, and anti-Catholic bigotry was running high in the city amidst fears of an attack by Spanish forces. African-born slaves, Roman Catholics, and black Spaniards were all suspect. The jury was impaneled on April 21st, and Mary Burton, a 16-year-old Irish indentured servant at Hughes's Tavern, was brought in to testify before the jury. 
Under duress, Mary testified that Caesar, Prince, Cuffy, and a group of poor whites had conspired to burn down the city, kill all the white men, claim the white women for their own, and elect a new king and governor from among their ranks. Burden also implicated a white prostitute named Peggy Kelly, who was connected to Caesar. Peggy Carey was in turn forced to testify. To save herself, she implicated numerous other slaves in the conspiracy. Those she named were arrested, and they too were also forced to provide testimony and name names. In May 1741, Caesar and Prince were charged not with conspiracy, but with burglary, and were hanged. Peggy Carey, who was pregnant with Caesar's child, tavern owner John Hewson and his wife were arrested and publicly executed in June. Hewson's body, and possibly those of his wife and Carrie as well, were hung on a gibbet and left to rot for all to see. Despite the series of arrests, trials, and executions, Judge Horsmanden had still not uncovered any solid evidence of a plot to burn down New York City. He began to offer monetary rewards to anyone who could provide such evidence. By the end of the three-month investigation, about 150 people had been arrested and either testified or confessed. Mary Burton continued to accuse and implicate conspirators into the summer of 1741. She eventually accused more than 20 whites, including a man named John Ury, a Latin teacher, who was supposedly using his Catholicism to influence the rebellion. He was eventually hung, along with about 30 slaves overall. About 80 others, mostly black but some white, were deported and sent to Newfoundland, the West Indies, and the Madeira Islands. For whatever reason, the wave of fear had passed by the end of the summer, and all the accusations and trials ended. There might well have been a conspiracy to burn down Manhattan. It might have been a lone arsonist. It might have been a strange coincidence. At this point, we will probably never know. In August 2011, a 16-year-old girl named Lori Brownell a student at Leroy Jr. Senior High School in New York State, about 50 miles east of Buffalo, passed out suddenly at a rock concert. In September, she passed out again at her school's homecoming dance. Her doctors put her on Celexa, but she only got worse. Her fingers fluttered, her hands clapped, she shouted, Hey! almost like she was involuntarily cheerleading. She tried to manage her tics, outbursts, and seizures the best she could while her doctors continued to look for some medical cause, but could find nothing. In the meantime, other children at the Leroy School had come down with the same or similar symptoms as Lori's. Eventually, 20 people, almost all of them girls who were students at Leroy Junior Senior High School, were suffering from verbal tics, spasms, nausea, dizziness, seizures, and other symptoms. As if they had all caught Tourette's Syndrome, except Tourette's isn't a contagious disease. The school and the State Department of Health looked for environmental factors that might have caused the outbreak, but found nothing. Perhaps the symptoms were a side effect of drugs, medications, vaccines, trauma, genetic factors, a rare condition known as PANDAS, pediatric autoimmune deficiency syndrome, still nothing. The mysterious illness garnered local television and newspaper coverage of the girls, and eventually attention from national news and even the BBC in Britain and the girls were posting their own videos to YouTube, showing their symptoms and describing their ordeals on Facebook posts, attracting even more attention from around the globe. By early January 2012, 
the authorities had settled on an explanation, a diagnosis, for what was affecting the girls, but they were strangely reluctant to share it with the public. During a community meeting, the New York State Department of Health said they couldn't reveal their diagnosis because of concerns about the students' privacy. Five days later, two of the girls appeared on the Today Show on NBC television to discuss their condition. They vented their frustration with the authorities, withholding information from the families affected. As a result of this public pressure, a neurologist named Dr. Laszlo Mechtler, who had been treating most of the girls, was allowed to share the agreed-upon diagnosis, conversion disorder and mass psychogenic illness. These are psychological disorders that arise from the victim's mind dealing with stress, trauma, or depression by manifesting physical symptoms. The physical distress is real, but it ultimately stems from a mental source. The families were mostly not pleased with this diagnosis, as it seemed to imply that the girls were essentially making it all up or were simply crazy. And not everyone agreed. The environmental activist Aaron Brockovich was convinced that the fits were caused by cyanide and an industrial solvent that spilled from a nearby train derailment back in the 1970s, that had contaminated the soil around the Leroy School, although no pollution was ever found. Dr. Mechtler and others advised the girls to stop posting about their condition on the internet and to stay off of social media in general as much as possible. And some of the girls did start to improve as a result. In June 2012, the symptoms began to clear up as suddenly as they appeared, except for two girls who were found to have actual cases of Tourette's syndrome. As the school year drew to a close, the girls seemed to be better and moved on with their lives, with the exception of Lori Brownell. She and her mother had rejected the diagnosis of conversion disorder at its implication that what had happened to Lori wasn't real, and they had refused to allow Lori to be treated at the same neurology center as most of the other girls. Instead, the Brownells decided that Lori was suffering from a chronic form of Lyme disease that was difficult to detect. This required long-term doses of intravenous antibiotics and other treatments and appointments, which the Brownells' insurance eventually stopped paying for. In the face of these struggles, Lori persevered. She graduated from high school in 2014 and has faded from the national spotlight as she, too, tries to move on with her life. Since the Leroy outbreak, various psychologists have come to the conclusion that mass psychogenic illness, the updated term for what was once called mass hysteria, has made a comeback in the 2000s and 2010s after a long decline. The new technologies of communication and intimacy have allowed the old fears, the old paranoias, the visions, to spread wider than at any time in human history. They have enabled that evil hand that was present in Salem Village to cast its shadow across the entire earth. <laughs>